Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows Palestine will be free. Today we have Adelaide, Zoe, and Ozzy. And today, unsurprisingly, we're talking about Palestine. We have done quite a few episodes on the occupation of Palestine in the past, which we recommend you go back and listen to. They are episodes 24, the occupation of Palestine, episode 35, the occupation of Palestine, part two, um, episode 139, Palestine liberation and Black Lives Matter. It's also um, mentioned in Zoe's Jewish solidarity episode, but that wasn't necessarily the primary focus of that episode. Um, but obviously with everything going on, it's very important to us to do a refresher and an update on what's going on. So we're going to start with some history and like some debunking of some myths and stuff. Um, I really want us to start out by clarifying that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or more accurately, the occupation of Palestine, is not a forever conflict that is far too complicated to understand, um, which is a very, like, I would say the most common talking piece about this by most Americans. Yes, definitely. This in and of itself is a piece of propaganda that's been used for decades to justify the violence perpetrated by the state of Israel. The conflict has a fairly clear start in in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the dawn of Zionism. Before this time, there are many accounts of all people who lived in the region, which included Christian, Jewish, and Muslim people, getting along peacefully. So in case you're not aware, Zionism is the belief that Jewish people were given Israeli land by God, and they have a sacred duty to build modern structures throughout the land, even if that includes using force. Religious justification was combined with political rhetoric as political Zionism's founder, Theodore Herzl, in his own diaries, called Zionism a colonial movement. Basically, Theodore Herzl saw the Dreyfus affair and anti-Semitism in Europe and reached the conclusion that Jewish people simply were not being afforded their, their rightful place as part of the Occidental against the Orient. So, um, you know, this is like classic Edward Said, what is the West, what is the Orient? Um, and that European Jews deserved a part of European superiority over colonized people in order to survive. Zionist rhetoric also claimed that Palestine was the perfect place because in addition to being a religiously significant piece of land, the land was, quote, empty. This was seen widely through the slogan, a land without a people for a people without a land. Of course... Many, many Palestinians already lived in Palestine, but Lord Balfour of Britain, who was a main proponent of Zionist measures, wrote, quote, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in an age-long tradition, in present needs, in future hopes, of far profounder import than the desire and prejudices of 700,000 Arabs who inherit 
who inhabit that ancient land, unquote. From the very beginning, Westerners allied themselves with the Zionist movement against the Palestinians. The U.S. government supported the creation of Israel in part as a quote-unquote solution to a problem that they didn't want to deal with by actually allowing Jewish people to immigrate to the United States. Yeah, um, I just want to add on to the understanding of Zionism here, this the ideology of Christian Zionism, since as we will get into more later, a lot of people, um, notably many US politicians who fund Israel, help fund Israel, are not Jews and do not in fact care about Jews. Um, so there's like various beliefs and groups within Christian Zionism. But overall, Christian Zionism is a religious and political ideology, which has no like formal structure, but generally demands total support for the modern political state of Israel in order to, quote, gather all the Jews there. Some people believe this will trigger the rapture, um, the second coming of Christ, which I like, uh, whatever, I won't get into Love my thoughts that. on that. You, yeah. Normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and these people believe that bringing Jews to their biblical homeland would herald the biblically prophesized end times. And these ideas tend to be prevalent amongst evangelical and fundamentalist Christian groups specifically, but exist globally in all different sects of Christianity. There's also um, like a Mormon group of people with these ideals. And so the largest Zionist organization in America is a Christian organization called Christians United for Israel. And in fact, the largest Zionist organization, the one I just mentioned, has more Christian members than the total number of Jews who live in America. Um, so for clarity here, there's about 7.5 million Jews who live in the U.S., and there are 10 million Christian members of Christians United for Israel, um, and 30 million Christian Zionists in the U.S. alone, which is double the worldwide population of Jews. So I just want to repeat that again, because it's kind of a wild statistic there. There are double the amount of Christian Zionists in the U.S. alone than the entire number of Jewish people who live on this planet. Um, That's so telling. Yeah. And so these groups see both Jews and Palestinians as pawns in this sort of means to their end game of the second coming, as their views are that Jews would not be saved in the rapture. And the genocide of Palestinians is like a means to get to that point where all Jews can be gathered into this land. So Christian Zionists actively lobby for both the return of Jews to modern-day Israel and for, quote, an end to the existence of territories administered by the Palestinian Authority. Additionally, Christian Zionists intentionally spread anti-Semitism in the U.S. and in other countries in an attempt to scare diasporic Jews, which is Jews who live anywhere but Israel, into moving to Israel where it's supposed to be, like, quote-unquote, safe. Um, this is where, like, Jews are safe, right? It's the homeland etc. And so they intentionally spread anti-Semitism to make Jews, you know, want to go there in their view. Right. Um, and so we'll get more into the current influence of this movement later on when we're talking about the kind of current policy and U.S. involvement. But important to note that this has always been a large driving force in the creation of modern day Israel. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, in in this space like uh of history as well the british alignment um that it had with israel and the state of israel 
went against the self-determination that Britain promised to the Palestinian people before the dawn of Zionism. The population of the region was predominantly Muslim and Christian Arabs, even after the Holocaust. It was only through a mass exodus of Jews from Europe, which started far before the Holocaust, that Jewish people in Palestine even began to maintain a significant percentage of the population. European leaders backed Zionism in part because they were partially at fault. The development of Zionism as a political movement was entirely a product of European society in an age of imperialism, and it is impossible to understand outside of that context. Zionism was one response, the nationalist response, of a section of Jews and Christians, as Zoe mentioned, to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe and, of course, in the United States. Yeah, I think the fact that one of the main people behind this was named Lord Balfour is just really great evidence of how this whole plan was like a European thing that was like imposed by Europe and the US on a much less powerful region of the world um, through the use of violence. There's this very extensive history of colonial governments using their colonies as testing grounds for violent repression and then like taking the most effective techniques and expanding those out further to other colonies or other areas that they want to control. Um, so in this specific case, Lord Balfour began his career working against indigenous Irish activists who were fighting for control of their land, and then he moved on to advocating for similar things in Palestine. Um, there's also a history of colonial governments using oppressed subjects as like a pawn to then carry out further colonial violence on other groups of people. So one example that's relevant to us in the US is Britain sent a lot of displaced Irish, Welsh, and Scottish folks to colonize the Americas with like this promise of their own land where they would be safe and it would be theirs, kind of similar to like everything that was put up around Israel for Jewish people. Um, even though obviously there were similarly already people living on that land since like Irish folks, for example, had their land taken from them by the British government, that created a situation where people who were marginalized within British society could then like turn and take power in this new colonial context. Um, so similar to what Addie was talking about, about like how some Jewish leaders who were like essentially just caping for the establishment thought that this would be a good strategy to like get a place where Jewish people could be doing colonial violence and like take on the lead role. Um, and I think that whole like process kind of obscures how if you pull back the curtain on that, it's still actually like that main colonial government that's ultimately responsible for creating the situation and bankrolling genocide. Um, so similarly, it was like primarily politicians and corporate interests who are actually responsible for ensuring that so many displaced Jews would end up in Palestine. Um, and like, a, like we've talked about a few of those powerful people were Jewish, although most of them weren't. Um, but either way, it wasn't like, you know, the average Jewish refugee who like created this problem. Although many Jewish refugees did then go on to perpetuate colonial violence by settling in Israel the same way that Irish refugees did in the Americas. Um, I just think it's important to be really clear about how this was like an intentional long-standing British strategy to kind of hide their actual role in genocide and displacement of indigenous peoples. Oh, absolutely. 
So in 1945, Britain didn't know what to do with the mounting conflict. Um, so they turned the issue over to the United Nations. The United Nations made up a partition plan in 1947 where the land was divided into two states. Arabs received 43% of the land, even though they made up 69% of the population and owned over 92% of the land. Jews were given 56% of the land, often the most fertile land, and only made up 31% of the population. Ilan Pape, director of the European Center for Palestinian Studies, notes, Partition in the history of Palestine is an act of destruction committed within a framework of a UN peace plan that drew no international condemnation whatsoever. Partition signifies international complicity in the crime of destruction, not a peace offer. So within this framework, anyone who spoke out against the partition became an automatic enemy of peace, even though it meant almost 300,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes. Seizing this international moment, Israel officially announced its statehood on May 15, 1948. This started the first full-scale intentional ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people by Israelis. These long attacks have been called Nakbas by Palestinians. Nakba in Arabic means catastrophe. After this stint of violent aggression, the Israeli army, or IDF, took even more land. The West Bank came under the jurisdiction of Jordan, and Gaza came under Egypt. Over 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forced out of their homes, um, and most Palestinian refugees who are now in those refugee camps or being pushed from one to another are often like third generation refugee camp citizens. Obviously, you can't be a citizen of a refugee camp, but you get what I mean. The Palestinian refugee crisis would only be exacerbated with the 1967 Nakba, where the Israeli state determined that it wanted to occupy the rest of historic Palestine. This displaced more than 400,000 Palestinians, again, many of which were being displaced for a second time. This refugee crisis is unique because it has far more permanence than any other refugee settlements in the world. Um, yes, like their third and fourth generation born into the camps. Additionally, these refugee camps were not and obviously still aren't safe havens. The military occupation can only be described as unbearable. These conditions led to the first acts of resistance called the Intifada. The first Intifada, or shaking off, included large numbers of Palestinians rebelling against the Israeli occupation. Homemade weapons were used against the Israelis as the Palestinians did not have access to any formal military weapons. As a result, the Israeli government took on a policy that came to be known as the Break the Bones strategy. During the first intifada, over 400,000 Palestinians were imprisoned without any charges, and torture was rampant. Often, the United States and other Western elites cite in the intifadas as a reason why they assist and align themselves with Israel. 
Western elites are horrified by the idea that people have the right to resist occupation and genocide by any means. They see Israeli soldiers menacing children with guns as legitimate, non-scary violence, but children throwing rocks or men with homemade guns against tanks as scary. We spoke about this dichotomy a lot during our episode connecting Palestinian liberation to the Black Lives Matter movement because the resources that police have, backed by the state, compared to the ways in which black people and other people of color may defend themselves is obviously a vast difference. And yet any attempt to fight back against the violently, oppre violently oppressive police state is given so much attention and vilified. In addition to larger amounts of fatalities, Palestinians were disproportionately affected by a number of other indicators. Since 1967, about 12,000 Palestinian, ho Palestinian homes were demolished, 700 of which were during the so-called Oslo peace talks during Clinton administration. And this number was from over five years ago, so that number is undoubtedly higher. Israelis are allowed to continue expanding their settlements throughout the region, displacing more and more Palestinians off their land. And this is where Zionist Israelis become violent actors of the state. We have civilians on the Israeli side committing violence and forcing Palestinians from their home because they have the backing of the IDF and the state of Israel. And this is important when we think about what it means to have the rhetoric of citizens being such a huge part of this violence. Even things like architectural structures, such as pipes and roads, were built in such a way to harm Palestinians. For example, water pipes throughout the region are purposefully built deeper on Israeli land and shallower on Palestinian land. Um, so that when there's a drought, this creates water crises on a regular basis. And additionally, there's a massive apartheid wall that divides the land, um, which obviously is a clear example of apartheid and of control of movement. And, you know, it's important, though, that we raise awareness about the acts of resistance that are happening in addition to the perpetration of violence. And I know Zoe's going to get into that a bit more. Totally. So yeah, I want to talk about the history of Jewish and Palestinian leftists and a lot of solidarity that has always existed there. Um, to give credit, I got a lot of this information from the book Revolutionary Yiddish Land, which I've definitely recommended on the podcast before. Great fucking book. Um, highly recommend. And also from an article in Left Voice that talked about some of these movements. Um, this is going to be a relatively brief history of what is a very extensive history, but we got an hour here. So there have been anti-Zionist Jews for as long as there has been a Zionist movement, which I'll be talking about a lot here because, like, the weaponization of Jewish trauma to support the violence and genocide against Palestinians is just disgusting, heart-wrenching, um, and also does try to create this divide between Jews and Palestinians that, like, just has never been fucking true, Um of course, there are Jews who are Zionist, but that's, like, by no means part of, like, Judaism as a whole, right? Um, anyway, both sides of my family fled where they were from due to genocides that happened. My mom's family um, were and are Eastern European Jews, and my dad's side were Greek Orthodox um, 
in Lebanon slash Syria, um, depending on the years and the borders that have existed. But the latter, I really only know from piecing together history. My grandfather was orphaned and forced into a very assimilative upbringing in the U.S. So we didn't really grow up knowing a lot about our family history. And like that is, you know, an intentional thing that comes along with genocide is loss of culture and wanting to like erase certain people's history. Um, so say, you know, saying this to say, like, I feel like it's really important to, you know, recognize the ways that, um, the ways that genocide creates intergenerational trauma. And also like, I grew up being taught that these identities could only be in conflict with each other. Um, I was taught that like I went to, you know, Hebrew school and had so many bad reactions for like also being an Arab person. Um, and something that brings me a certain level of reprieve and hope is like understanding the really incredible solidarity that's always existed between these groups, even though the popular narrative as always seeks to create a very violent divide. So when the majority of Jews in Eastern Europe first started hearing about the idea of colonizing Palestine, they were like, what are you talking about? That's a ridiculous idea. And I don't know. I've just been thinking about this of like the idea going back, trying to put myself in that mindset of like people just start being like, hey, you know, what we should do is colonize this country. People were like, what are you talking about? Right. Like that. That doesn't sound like something that's like really going to happen. Um, right. Also, even if you think of other examples of like, I don't know, like anti-slavery activists being like, maybe we should try to organize a bunch of Black folks to go back to Africa. Like, it's been really hard to get kind of big efforts like that to happen. So it just mm -hmm. like, it sounds like, oh, cool. Like, we're just going to move all these people. Sure. Like, right. right. Yeah. Um, and so the like proletarian Jews in Eastern Europe at the time would sing songs um, like mockingly. Um there's a song that's called like you foolish little Zionists, which is very fun. Um, and the most famous anti-Zionist workers organization was the, the general Jewish workers league, better known as the Bund. And this was part of a huge population of working class Jews living in Eastern Europe prior to the Holocaust. Many of these Jews spoke Yiddish, which we talked about on uh, our language episode, but Yiddish dates back to the ninth century and leading up to the Holocaust, approximately 11 to 13 million Jews um, were Yiddish speakers and out of approximately 17 million Jews worldwide. So it was primarily a working class language. It was utilized by a lot of poor Jews. It was also used for organizing and other left leftist propaganda so that the ruling class would not catch on because this was not like an official language. And the society union touted it as the language of the Jewish proletariat. However, 85% of Jews killed in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. Um, and the assimilation post-Holocaust caused the language to die out even more. Um, so following the Holocaust in Israel, people were not allowed to speak Yiddish because it was seen as a poor people's language. And Hebrew was the language of the like bourgeois Jews. By the 90s, there were only about 1.5 to 2 million Yiddish speakers and significantly less by now. Like my grandparents and great-grandparents spoke Yiddish, but they used it as a way for kids to not know what they were saying. So they you know, didn't really pass it on. I know like a few words here and there. But yeah, so in Israel, which was like touted and still is as this like Jewish safe haven, this is still something that was, you know, not accepted and people were persecuted for speaking Yiddish. Um, and then, oh, <laughs> Addie just grabbed, is that a book? 
Yeah, I, I, when I was studying this in grad school, I have this book. It's absolutely amazing. It's called The Palestine Communist Party, 1919 to 1948, Arab and Jew in the Struggle for Internationalism. It's so good. Amazing. And the reason Addie grabbed that book is that's what I'm ta- about to start talking about. So <laughs> I, hadn't Party. <laughs> I hadn't read no, your I part yet. I hadn't read your part like before we started recording because I was just like, obviously, I want I love to hear it in the moment as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I wanted <laughs> to get to this if I had time. So I'm pumped that you are. Oh, well, feel free to add in because I kept it pretty short, but we got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 1919, Jewish immigrants to Palestine founded the first communist organization there. Many working class Jews after arriving in Palestine realized that the goal of a Jewish ethno state, even a quote socialist one, was not a good idea. And so this group fought against the British imperialism that Addie mentioned and called for the unity of Jewish and Palestinian workers. And the Jews in this group continued to speak Yiddish, regardless of the persecution of people for speaking the language. And this group later fell apart due to Stalinism. So essentially, Stalin revived anti-Semitism in the proletariat movements of Eastern Europe with the Moscow trials, which during these trials, a lot of leaders of the October Revolution who were Jewish were accused of being spies and traitors who had hid their Jewish names. And this ultimately led to violence and killing amongst the leaders of the Palestine Communist Party, along with um, many other Jewish communists. So just side note here. Fuck Stalin even more. (laughs) Let's not rehabilitate the energy. Yeah. No, what's what I what I couldn't get out of my mind when I was typing this is that I knew someone in New York City DSA, a man, of course, of course, who just like as like an edgelord line loved to be like Stalin did nothing wrong. And I was like, oh, so anyway, big, yikes, um, big, yikes. <laughs> fuck that man in particular. So just a little side note. Now that we're getting into Stalinism, Stalin later supported the creation of the state of Israel and provided weapons to the Zionist military to carry out an ethnic cleansing from there the now widely Stalinized Communist Party continued to carry out anti-Semitic campaigns and played a key role in helping Zionists um, get weapons to commit the uh, Nakba that Adi mentioned as well. So yeah, next, the Revolutionary Communist League of Palestine. So the Palestinian communists who opposed the Stalinist takeover of communist politics started a new group called the Revolutionary Communist League, which included a large number of Jews as well. And this group continued to oppose the imperialist plans for the land of Palestine and called for a socialist homeland for both Arabs and Jews. They continued to organize trade unions for Arab and Jewish workers to continue acting in solidarity with each other. And many of the leaders and members of this group were persecuted by Britain. And once again, this group fell apart due to Zionist violence. So uh, definitely a a theme here in this history. And uh, the same theme that's in all of the history that we talk about on Season of the Bitch. So the last group I want to talk about um, was called the Matspen, the Israeli Socialist Organization. So in 1962, there was this revitalized new left in what was by this point Israel. And one of the leaders, Jacob Tout, who grew up as a worker in Berlin and ended up fleeing to Palestine in 1934 um, because he was unable to get a visa from anywhere else. So... This is just a little bit of a sidebar about his story, which I think is really interesting. Even though like he always opposed Zionism, he had no other options at that time. Um, 
like it was the only place he could get a visa from. And of course, this was not like an accident. Um, this was very much an intentional product of Zionism, right? Is to like force people to settle there as part of the colonial project. So he worked in an oil refinery in Haifa. And in 1948, a Zionist terrorist group bombed the factory, um, bombed the factory and killed many of the Arab workers. And that attack led to retaliation, um, which was widely against Jews and Tal was injured, but survived. And he continued to maintain his stance that fighting against Zionism for Jewish and Palestinian workers could help build a better world together. So this group, the Matzpen was a pretty small group. However, they had a loud opposition to the state of Israel and Zionism as a whole, which got them a lot of attention, including from the prime minister at the time. They also helped set up Israeli Black Panthers, which was a group of Jews from North Africa and Middle Eastern descent. And these groups brought a lot of attention to what was happening in Israel and Palestine and spread this through the international left. Like that was a big part of spreading more information amongst the left of like what was really happening there. And then in the mid 1970s, this group split into two sections with opposing views on like the best ways to carry out their mission. I'm not really going to get into all that, but yeah, basically turn into different like sex. Of that Wait, group. leftist infighting? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can look it up if you want to know more. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just like a note on current day Israel slash Palestine, um, occupation of Palestine. There are still many anti-Zionists in Israel as well as everywhere. But I've noticed a lot of folks who think everyone who lives in Israel is a Zionist, which in my opinion is kind of like thinking everyone in the US supports, supports our government. Trump. Yeah. And right. like the way we got our land. Right. Um, as I mentioned it's with Jacob It's truly Tout, unhinged. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Just like as I mentioned with Jacob Tout's story, because of the pervasiveness of anti-Semitism along with Zionism in the um, like early to mid 1900s, a lot of Jews ended up there because they were given no other choice, not because they supported the creation of Israel or were like, we want to go there. Um, right. So yeah. Yeah, just as an example of that, like, my everyone in my family who survived the Holocaust tried to come to the US, but only one of them was actually able to get in. And she had to pretend she was like, someone's daughter instead of someone's niece in order to like get the visa so it was like really hard and it's like a lot of people would have been happy to go somewhere else where they like actually had family but they just couldn't yeah yeah totally so we're gonna move into some more recent events um we actually don't end up going too too into detail of the recent events over the last four weeks um, other than to say it's been a mass atrocity and there's a lot of things. And we touch on some things um, as well as um, actions and resistance. However, I think there's a, a quite a bit of coverage on that. I highly recommend Democracy Now! especially for that. Um, but this is kind of, I wanted to touch on more recent, like recent history uh, leading up to this current Nakba. So... Since 2007, Gaza has been economically suffocated by a siege that stops food, medicine, and construction materials from getting in. I saw a recent um, video because they like basically blockade anything from getting into areas where Palestinians are right now, and these uh, workers 
like they someone let through a truck and they were like what is on this truck and it was literally the cloth that's meant to cover bodies when they die what people when they're murdered so it was like israel doing this very um psychological warfare piece of that wall not allowing things through but that not allowing things through is not new um it's been restricted uh, for a very long time but it's been severely restricted since 2007 um the unemployment rate uh and this is again a few years old stood at 47 percent in palestine it's why so many have jumped at the opportunity since october 2021 to access work permits to earn a living as day laborers in Israel. The process of applying for a work permit is arduous and unpredictable. Israel issues these permits through a quota system and many applicants are denied. And those who secure permits face daily challenges, long waits at the border crossings, strict security checks, grueling commutes, obviously the rampant discrimination, etc. And there are 19,000 Palestinians from Gaza, um, which so it's Gaza and the West Bank are the two primary areas, but Gaza is the one um, that's, you know, been in the hot seat for a very euphemistic way of of describing the situation that's fucked. Um, So when the latest wave of violence began three weeks ago, the air is crossing into Gaza was completely closed off. Thousands of Palestinian laborers were stranded on the Israeli side, far from their families and with no source of income. Their work permits were revoked, leaving their lives completely in flux. Um, And this is a familiar pattern for Palestinians, displacement, dispossession, and uncertainty. Some are missing, some are stranded, some have been arrested, and others have been deported to the West Bank, explains Shahan Saeed, a general secretary of the Palestinian General General Federation of Trade Unions. And the Nakba isn't a fixed historical event, but it's an ongoing phenomenon characterized by 75 years of occupation, colonial violence, and displacement. The Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated places on Earth, is home to many of these refugees. Some still have their keys to their former homes. And in the past month, over 9,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli bombardments, and that's as of November 3rd, 2023. The bombardments target mosques, schools, hospitals, and residential buildings. It's impossible to actually understand what 9,000 means um but obviously as we know it is a truly horrific number yeah i feel like there's there's like nothing to say about it it's just horrible yeah of course um so switching gears slightly um i wanted to really lay out the u.s's role in funding genocide this genocide, this particular genocide, yes, let's do it. and historically this genocide, but obviously the United States is um, a backer of genocides worldwide, um, as it turns mm. out. So, um, but the this one is certainly a unique one. 
it, it stands apart from every other um, support. So a conservative estimate of the total U.S. direct aid to Israel is almost $270 billion from 1946 to, to 2023 adjusted for inflation. This is an estimate because arriving at an exact amount is not possible since much of U.S. aid to Israel is buried in the budgets of various U.S. agencies or is in a form not easily quantified, such as the early dis disbursement of aid. This estimate does also does not include the indirect benefits to Israel resulting from U.S. aid or the consequential cost to the United States as a result of its support for Israel. Namely, this estimate does not include the costs resulting from the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, which is widely understood throughout the Arab world as many and by many non-Arabs as well as an undertaking for the benefit of Israel. To put this um, $270 billion in perspective, Israel is the largest cumulative recipient of U.S. aid since World War II. It receives around one-third of all U.S. aid given annually. This is over $10 million per day that the U.S. spends on a population that is the same size as the state of Wisconsin. This amount increased since the Iran deal in October of 2015 when U.S. officials announced they were planning to increase aid to Israel by $1 billion per year. Joe Biden, enemy of the pod and human who is literally denying the death toll in Palestine, recently requested $14.3 billion aid in an aid package on top of this $3.8 billion the U.S. already sends to Israel every year. The U.S. has already sent Israel five shipments of military weaponry, which included Air Force F-15 and F-16 fighter jets and A-10 attack, attack squadrons. This means American-made weapons are bombing Gaza and American-made munitions are being dropped on innocent people. Yeah. Um, as promised, since we're talking about the U.S. government, I want to kind of bring back Christian Zionism here and talk about Hell their yeah. power in the current U.S. government. It was not already clear. Many Christian Zionists are very conservative, um, but not all. The former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer, said, quote, people have to understand that in the backbone of Israel's support is the in the U.S. is the evangelical Christians. He also noted that it is very rare for evangelicals to criticize Israel, while American Jews are disproportionately among Israel's critics. Um, and then also Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister himself, is quoted saying, I don't believe the Jewish state and modern Zionism would be possible without Christian Zionism. So this is not like a secret, right? They know who their supporters are. Also, I think I must have said this on the podcast before, but I'm going to say it again. Benjamin Netanyahu went to the same high, high school. school as me. <laughs> I was I hoping you would say it. That. Yeah. Um, Cursed. To be clear, he went to high school in Philly. I did not ever live in Israel. Um, Sometimes people are like, wait, where did you go to high school? And I'm like, right. no, no, no. He lived in Philadelphia, to be yeah. very clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
So yes, and these Christian Zionist groups have influenced decisions related to military aid, foreign aid packages, um, and support for Israeli government policies, all of the things Adi was just talking about. They directly fund settlers and settler violence. One other fact about Christian Zionists, 70% of white evangelicals agree that, quote, God gave the land that is now Israel to the Jewish people. And that is twice the percentage amount of Jews who were asked the same question of like, if God gave them the right to this land currently. Um, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to like defend Zionist Jews. Um, I fight with them all the time. Don't worry. Yeah, no, but it's important because that's like not people don't talk about the Christian Zionists as much. Right. There's like this idea that all Jews are Zionists and that it has nothing to do with other religions. But like there's a lot of fucking Christian Zionists. Yeah, for sure. I'm still honestly stuck on that statistic that there's more Christian Zionists in the U.S. than Jews globally. Like, that's just so funny and horrifying. Yes. Um, I feel like even beyond, like, there's obviously this really, like, fitting alignment between far-right Christianity and Zionism, but then I think also Zionism just goes very easily with, like, just general far-right like racist neo-nazi beliefs um there are like a lot of right-wing zionists in the u.s and europe who explicitly think like jews should be forced to go to palestine rather than just like allowed to right take that land and i think that's like it sort of goes along with this whole idea that like everyone should just like go to a place where they will only be with people like them and then also white christians will have the u.s to control um even though they're not like the original indigenous people here by any means um it just like it it can really fit into this like very far right like everyone should be with only their own religious and racial groups um which is like another part of what i think is upsetting about this ideology oh yeah i mean literally an ethno state is not something that is allowed (laughs) or considered to be okay in any other context. Like, that's the fucking problem. Like, we don't do ethnostates because of colonialism. Because it's like, how can you do that when there's no such thing as... Anyway, you know. Okay, back to the U.S. and the financial vibes. Okay. So it's it's really important to understand why we are and other activists are asking you to berate the absolute shit out of your elected officials um, because a main reason for the continued excess of support in Israel is the powerful network of pro-Israel lobbies within the United States, the largest of which is APAC or American Israel Public Affairs Committee. These lobbies actively work to shape U.S. foreign policy in ways that directly benefit Israel. Almost all elected officials have been influenced by their power, which creates a unilateral bipartisan exceptionalism when addressing Israel legislatively. There's literally nothing else like it. Um, Former U.S. Congressman Paul Finley noted In the 22 years I served in the House, there was never a moment when there was really a debate about U.S. policy in the Middle East, end quote. 
From 1978 to 2006, pro-Israeli political action committees have contributed 43724035 um, to candidates who vote in Congress according to APAC's recommendations. That money also infiltrates our media and general messaging that we receive. And again, that's only the money we know and can account for, which doesn't address any of the billions of dollars in dark money that influence our system as well. Yeah. Well, as we do here at Season the Bitch, I think we want to end with, um, you know, maybe like a more hopeful note. So talking about the resistance that's happening in the U.S. and Palestinian. So I say Palestinian solidarity. I don't know what's going on in my mouth. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to kind of bring it back to the solidarity I was talking about between Jews and Palestinians and talk about some of those protests that have been happening and that are widely organized with solidarity from Palestinian and Arab and other activist groups. But Jews have been very vocal in the protests that are happening all around the U.S. Some of the largest protests in recent history for any issue have been Jews calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, Jews amongst other people. So yeah, I wanted to mention a couple of the main groups that are part of this U.S. Jewish contingent. So one is Jewish Voice for Peace, which was founded in 1996 and describes itself as the largest Jewish pro-Palestinian organization in the world and has over 44, no, 440,000 members and supporters across 30 different states. And then there's If Not Now, which also has a large U.S. network with tens of thousands of Jewish members who have taken direct action to protest the Israeli occupation since 2014. So Jewish Voice for Peace was one of the groups that led the protests at Grand Central Station, which you might have seen, which brought thousands of Jews and other people into the station and ultimately shut down the main portion of Grand Central Station. And almost 400 people were arrested, which made this the largest civil disobedience in New York City since protests against the Iraq War. Rabbis, including my rabbi, shout out, um, launched the event by lighting Shabbat candles and reciting the Jewish prayer for morning known as um, the Kaddish or the Mourner's Kaddish. Um, and one of the rabbis who was involved, um, Rabbi May, was quoted saying, while Shabbat is typically a day of rest, we cannot afford to rest while genocide is unfolding in our names. And that was a statement that was released by the organizers of this event. Um, and then Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now, who we had on the Jewish Solidarity episode that Addie mentioned, um, organized a protest of thousands of people on Capitol Hill. Um, and so there's a quote, as Jewish people whose ancestors went through the Holocaust, when we hear Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant use words like the children of darkness and, quote, human animals to describe Palestinians, we feel the renaissances of that in our bones, said um, one of the If Not Now uh, the political director, whose name is Eva Borgwart, um, referring to recent comments made by Israeli officials, right, using those words weaponized against Palestinians. Um, and they also said, we know exactly where that language leads, and we are here to stop what they clearly intend to be a genocide. We will come to the doors of our lawmakers. We will be at the doors of our lawmakers for as long as it takes. So, yeah, that's just a couple of the many, many protests that have been happening. 
Yes, I want to talk about a couple of other protests that were notable to me. Um, so one was the weekend before this Grand Central protest that Zoe was just talking about. There were also about 150 to 200 protesters arrested, um, also in New York City, across two protests that happened, um, one on Friday in Manhattan and then one on Saturday in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Um, so I believe Saturday was the bigger protest, but more arrests happened on Friday. Um, but on Saturday, there was this like really massive protest in Bay Ridge. Um, it It's being reported as thousands of people being there. Um, I think it was like probably at least 5,000. That's just my best estimate from like standing there. Um, but anyway, so this protest- This is Aussie's, what do they call it? It's like density calculation or something? I don't even know. I mean, whatever, whenever it comes to estimating, I'm like, not very good at it unless it's number of people at a protest. Because then it's like, I always look to see what people reported as. And then it's always like a big question, right? Because like the people that organize it always want to say it was as many people as possible. Right. And like news always wants to say it was as few as possible for the most mm -hmm. part. So it's this like, um, it's this weird like triangulation when you're trying to figure out how many people were actually there. But I mean, yeah. it was fucking packed. That's what I can say. Mm -hmm. um, so this protest happened in a neighborhood in Bay Ridge that's called Little Palestine. Um, so there is a huge Palestinian diaspora population there. Um, one of the biggest Palestinian American communities. And the organizers of the march were mostly Palestinian youth. So as horrible as everything is and like as dark as things are feeling, it was really inspiring to see so many young people. And I'm talking about like preteens, a lot of them um, showing up in the streets, like leading contingents of this protest, like climbing up on their roofs to display banners and just really refusing to be silent. Um, and then folks have probably heard this past weekend, there was also a massive action in DC. Um, I didn't make it there, but I know a lot of organizers in New York who went, and there were people from tons of different states. Apparently, 22 different states were represented. Um, and for this one, protest organizers have said an estimated 300,000 people were there. So as a point of comparison, the first Women's March in 2017 was about 450,000 people in D.C. itself. So this was like two-thirds of the Women's March, which is huge. Um, in terms of upcoming actions to look out for going forward, um, I would definitely check out the Answer Coalition's website where they list all of the organizations they worked with for this November 4th march that just happened. Um, and then there's also this new website, Shut It Down for Palestine, which is where folks are organizing things for this Thursday, November 9th, um, which like, it will be too late when you're hearing this, but like that is also a recent thing. Um, those are both good places to check to find like local organizations in your area that are already organizing for Palestinian liberation, whose work you can just plug into and help amplify. Um, and yeah, we can link to both of those things in the show notes. I think this is an issue where like on the ground action is really important because it's like giving money is great, but in the US we're all already giving money to the Israeli military through our taxes. So I think like a bigger thing than giving more money somewhere else is organizing to stop that. And like, we really need to be speaking up on the record that we don't want our money to be used for that. Um, and then in terms of good places to give money, if that is something you can and want to do, um, the best information I've been able to find is that this organization, Medical Aid for Palestinians, is a good place to send funds to make sure that they go 
directly to helping with the ongoing health and humanitarian crisis. Um, and we can also link to that in the show notes. Um, so just talking about like other things that folks can do, ways to take action. Um, I think going back to what Addie was saying about like contacting your representatives, um, I think in the US and Western Europe as well, to an extent, like this is really an issue where contacting your elected officials and boycotting companies in our countries that are funding or profiting from genocide is a really good place to be putting our time. Um, just because this is an issue where like at the literal violence that's happening is not like in front of it, like it's not here, but we do have access to a lot of the most powerful people who are funding and enabling all of that to happen which is the same U.S. warmongers that we always are targeting with anti-military action, as well as some additional specific ones who are specifically tied to the Israeli military. Um, so Jewish Voice for Peace, which Zoe mentioned, has a great online tool that we can link to that helps you call your representatives. You just like fill out this form and it basically happens where they just like make your phone call each of your representatives based on your location um, and like area code. Uh, without you having to like dial all the numbers. Um, and then uh, I think another thing is that a lot of the biggest tech and engineering companies that sell consumer products also make weapons and other displacement technology for Israel. Um, those include Ford, GE, Motorola, tragically Hitachi um, sells them like, you know, construction equipment to like clear houses after they've displaced people. Um, so finding out where like those types of corporate offices are near you, which executives of those companies have homes near you, I think those are all good ways to be finding new protest targets, especially if you're in a smaller area where like maybe there's not like an elected official doesn't have a vacation home there, but maybe like there's a small GE office there. Um, and then I think also just trying to find alternate places to buy the things you need as much as you can rather than buying from those companies. Um, at the very least, if you're not normally up on the BDS boycott list, they also have a much shorter list of companies that they're targeting. I think they have like six main targets right now. So that's an easier thing to just be aware of. Like, I will not. And some of them are very small. Like, um, SodaStream is a big one that specifically just makes that one little SodaStream thing. Um, and Sabra, which basically makes hummus and some other foods. Like, they're things that are easy to avoid once you know about them. Um, so we can also put that in the show notes. Um, and then I think a final thing I want to talk about in terms of like what we can be doing to help in the U.S. I think one thing and other places that are not Palestine, wherever you're listening to this, um, I think it's really important to make sure that we're getting our news on this topic from like non-U.S. corporate poisoned media. Um, so I think um, Democracy Now! is a great place. Also Al Jazeera to me is kind of like the gold standard. Like if they have reported on something, that's what I would want to read first. Um, and then when it comes to local reporting, I think it's just about like doing the best you can. Like I was just looking at coverage, local coverage in New York of the protests that happened um, like in Little Palestine that I was talking about. And like there's two main daily newspapers in New York. One is the New York Post, which is like a horrible right wing rag. And then one is the Daily News, which is sometimes fine. Um, and their headlines on this were just completely different. The Post one was like, anti-Israel protesters violently clash with NYPD. And the Daily News one was like, pro-Palestine protesters arrested for second night in a row. 
which was like accurate, but the post completely left out that context um, and like framed the protesters as much more violent and like scary. Um, so it's almost I think like it's thing- on theme or something. Yeah, it, it's almost as though they're trying to support uh, some type of power here. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely like it can, it can be hard to find good reporting on this. Um, I think this is a case where like, you know, I would not just like trust Chinese and Russian state media on like local issues within their own borders. But they actually do tend to be one of the more like incisive investigative sources on specifically this kind of thing where it's like it will look bad for the U.S. to accurately report what Israel is doing with U.S. funding. And so those media outlets are actually trying to do some really good reporting on this right now. Um, Regardless of the reason, that's like where the money is going. So um, this thing happened recently where Chinese state media was accused by U.S. journalists of spreading fake news when they first reported that Israel was using internationally banned white phosphorus chemical weapons against Palestinians. But then days later, Human Rights Watch came out and confirmed like, yes, we also can confirm that Israel did use white phosphorus against civilians, which violates international law. So it's just a good example of like, we are intentionally having information kept from us by our own government. And a lot of mainstream media is complicit in that. Some of these reporters, like I I have no, I don't know and I don't care if they actually know how much they're just like, like working for the US government in this instance, but there, there is just like a lot of US journalists right now who are spreading misinformation essentially through the guise of like trying to get all the facts out there and just like trying to see all sides. Um, so uh, the overall message is just like, be really thoughtful before you take a reporter's word for something. However, you should always take our word for things because we already did that hard work for you. Um, And let's go. (laughs) Um, Everything we have ever said has been a fact. Has been fully true, (laughs) rigorously fact checked (laughs) by our interns. Um, no, but unpaid interns here at Season of Best. We're our own unpaid interns here. Um, (laughs) boom roast. So you can change that. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, you can change that. Um, by going to patreon.com slash season of the bitch. And you can also follow us on social media at season of the bee. You can check out our merch at our website, seasonofthebee.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Um, And do what you can to support folks in Palestine right now. It is horrible out there. That's it for this week's show. Love you. Love you. Be tender. Bye. Bye. the bitch.